Timothy chapter 5, it's on page 367 in that blue Bible. We got a huge dose of 1 Timothy last week as we did the officer election. We read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 11. We read at the installation service, 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul is explaining to Timothy the things he needs to know to be a pastor, the different technical aspects as well as moral, and he's still continuing that here in chapter 5. And so he's talking about ordaining elders, and here's what he says beginning at verse 25 or uh, 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and ordaining someone. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So keep 1 Timothy 5 in the back of your head, and let's turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 12. As we continue our series in 1 and 2 Chronicles... Reclaim, revive, reform, return. This is the rest of the story of Rehoboam, or the, the, the last part of the story. We looked at chapter 10 and 11 last week, and now we come to chapter 12 and what happens here. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of Yahweh and all Israel with him. In the fifth year of King Roboam, because they had been unfaithful to Yahweh, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots and and 60,000 horsemen. And the people were without number who came with him from Egypt, Libyans, Sukkayim, and Ethiopians. And he took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then Shemaiah, who spoke clear back in chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, you abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. Then the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, Yahweh is righteous. When Yahweh saw that they humbled themselves, the word of Yahweh came to Shemaiah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be servants to him, to Shishak, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdom of the countries. So Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of Yahweh, the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Robam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of Yahweh, the guard came and carried them and brought them back to the guard room. And when he humbled himself... The wrath of Yahweh turned from him so as not to make a complete destruction. Moreover, conditions were good in Judah. So King Robam grew strong in Jerusalem and reigned. Robam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city 
that Yahweh had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite, and he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek Yahweh. Now the acts of Robam from the first to the last, are they not written in the chronicles of Shemaiah the prophet and of Edo the seer? There were continual wars between Robam and Jeroboam, and Robam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, and Abijah his son reigned in his place. What I've read to you from 2 Chronicles and from 1 Timothy 5, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, our hearts are often sluggish, our minds often dull, and our perceptions often cloudy. We urgently need you to open our eyes and clear our heads and remove the clutter in our hearts so that in humility we may receive your word. Please do it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So for those of you who are visiting, the, on the back of the worship guide, there's the sermon outline. It has space for notes. There's a quotation there. Everybody needs to know there's a quotation there. There's some cross-references. And then there's some questions at the end. So the church ruptured. That was back in chapter 10 and 11. The church ruptured. The kingdom shattered. And it wasn't pretty. Arrogance and hubris seem to be lurking in, under, and with the rupture. Seen, for example, Robum's loud and proud responses. You remember, he would not take the counsel of the older men. In fact, if you go back and look at that very quickly, he says to them, how do you advise me to answer this people? He has no intention of doing it. He actually pushes it at a distance. But then he gets the counsel of the younger men and he asks them, how do you advise that we answer this people? You can tell he's already moving in a certain direction. He's loud and proud when the split comes after he shakes his little pinky in their faces. You have to go read the story for that. What does he do? He gathers the forces to go and force the northern tribes to comply with him as the king. And God has to put a stop to that. And then he builds up the fortified cities so that way he can keep Benjamin and Judah, the two regions that are his now, only his. He's full of spit and vinegar and there's all of this arrogance. But then there's a bright moment in chapter 11 verses 13 through 16 when the immigrants from the north who are fleeing the pressures in the north come flowing into this realm of Robom and they're immigrants who have set their hearts to seek Yahweh, chapter 11, verse 16. But by the time we get done with chapter 10 and 11, we have question marks. We have question marks because we've been cautioned. If you go back and look at chapter 11, 17, we've been cautioned that all of this lasted only three years. It says it there twice in one sentence, three years, three years. And then at the end of chapter 11, arrogant Roboam has married himself into an arrogant family. We walk away from chapter 11 with some hopefulness, but we have some big question marks. And sure enough, as we now enter chapter 12, we find ourselves on the way down. Verses 1 through 4, the way down. Verse 1 tells us where things have been heading and it removes all the question marks we have and it replaces it, them with an exclamation point. What you suspected in chapter 10 and 11, yeah, it was legit. Here's where this went. 
for all of the spiritual infusion of chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, the Levites and the priests fleeing Jeroboam up north and all the people who had set their hearts to seek Yahweh and they came flowing into Jerusalem for all of the spiritual infusion into this southern realm with all of the momentum and all of the opportunity. It just wasn't enough. It wasn't a strong enough epoxy to hold the pieces together. And so the the righteous faction of Rehoboam was not so righteous after all. Verse 1, when the rule of Rehoboam... This sounds like jailhouse religion and foxhole religion. Listen to how it goes. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, when he was safe and he was happy and everything was going well for him at that moment, He abandoned the law of Yahweh and all Israel with him. As Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, as he's talking about potential elders, he says, Do not be hasty to lay hands on anyone, to ordain anyone, nor take part in the sins of others, because the sins of some people are out in front conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Notice that the sins of Roman become clear. And conspicuous later, five years later, as you notice. All of the underlying arrogance and hubris that we took note of in chapter 10 and 11 has now given birth to sin and become apparent. So then the next verse tells you it all came about quickly. Verse 2, the fifth year. You were already warned of that back in chapter 11 for three years, for three years. So you know something's coming after the third year. And sure enough, in the fifth year. And notice that it came with a majority vote. Robin was not pushing the people. The majority, 51% or more, were all on board. The end of verse 1, and all Israel with him. Verse 2, because they had been unfaithful to Yahweh. Now it doesn't mean that every man, woman, boy, and girl in Judah was abandoning the Lord, but it means that there was a swelling social majority that's abandoned the Lord. Imagine what it would have been like to be one of the minority who loved the Lord and set your hearts to seek the Lord. You have to suffer for what the majority does. And starting here, verses 2 through 5, we have God's bad news if then. I pointed out to you when God was speaking to Solomon back in chapter 7, he gave him a good news if then and a bad news if then. If you continue to follow me and do what I say, then these are the positive benefits. But if you turn your back to me, then these are the consequences of that sin. There's a good news if then and a bad news. We're now seeing the outgrowth of the bad news if then. Negative causes bring negative effects. Now notice, what, they, what do they want to do? They want to live free. It's interesting. They abandoned the law of Yahweh. They want to live free of the life-giving, liberty-giving God. When it says they abandoned the law of Yahweh, your mind should go back to the Ten Commandments. And where do the Ten Commandments begin? Yes, I am Yahweh, your God, who has set you free, right? I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, redemption, liberation, emancipation. I set you free. So here's how free people live. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, right? 
So for them to turn their backs, to abandon the law of Yahweh means what? Means they abandon the life-giving, liberty-giving God. What does that leave them then to? The life-stifling, liberty-stealing ways. And sure enough, what is Shishak, the king of Egypt? Yeah, but Shishak serves gods that are life-stifling and liberty-stealing. And what is he doing? He's coming to Judah to do some life-stifling and liberty-stealing. What do you got? You've got their external circumstance. This king from Egypt exposing and mirroring their own internal condition. They had abandoned the life-giving, liberty-giving God. And all that's left to them is the life the life-snuffing, liberty-stealing way. And here it is in Shishak. They wanted to live free of the life-giving, liberty-giving God, which means they were opened up to the life-stifling, liberty-stealing ways. If you want to know more about what they did, you can go to 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 21 through 24. But thank God that in this situation, God does not leave his people in the dark. But he comes and he speaks. He sends Shemaiah, the prophet, to them. He speaks. God speaks and it was uncomfortable. God speaks and it reprimands and rebukes. But God speaks because he loves. And so the word of Yahweh, verse 5, the word of Yahweh... My friends, we all need to take seriously this principle that's laid out in verse 5... What does, Yahweh, what does the Lord say? He says, there in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 5, he says, You abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. I have abandoned you to the consequences of your sins, of your offenses. It's what David said to Solomon before David, right before David died, when he was blessing his son Solomon, back in 1 Chronicles 28 and verse Nine, when he said, and you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind for, for Yahweh searches all hearts and he understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. It's the same principle that will come up again and be mentioned again in 2 Chronicles 15 and 2 Chronicles 24. If we abandon the Lord... We can be abandoned to the consequences of our sins. Now somebody may say, well that's Old Testament and it's mean and nasty. And the New Testament it's all about love and fluff and stuffy things, right? But you go to Romans chapter 1 for example. When Paul is talking about how all creatures on the earth, how all people can know that there's no something about God and all are without excuse. He then starts to describe how societies... And cultures and nations are always pushing against God. Always pushing against his morality and what's good. And so, in Romans 1, verse 24, 26, and 28, it says, And God therefore gave them over to their desires. God gave them over. God gave them up to their desires. They abandoned him. He abandoned them to the consequences of their sins. You know, this book, this hymn book, you've seen me do this before, so don't get shocked when this happens. But this hymn book is pushing. What's keeping this hymn book from going all the way down? My hand is restraining it. 
right? If I withdraw my hand, where will this book go? Down. You abandoned Yahweh. He abandoned you. He gave you over to the consequences of your sins. That's what New Testament and Old Testament say. It's a principle we need to grasp. So the word of Yahweh by the prophet here would have been highly uncomfortable, highly unpopular, and highly unwanted then as it would be unwanted, unpopular today. But don't miss the significance of the word of Yahweh. Notice that God speaks to his wayward people. If God relished their destruction, if he was sitting in heaven frothing at the mouth, as some people want to think he is, frothing at the mouth going, oh goody, I get to wipe out another bunch of people, can't wait. (laughs) Then all he would have to do is not say diddly and just let them destroy themselves. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? But what happens? He speaks. He declares his rigor, but why? Because... His words of rigor are always meant to draw his people into his ways of restoration. He speaks, it's harsh to them, it would have been uncomfortable. He tells them the truth. You've abandoned me, I've abandoned you to the consequences of your sin. He speaks his words of rigor, why? To bring them into his way of restoration. Again, we may be tempted to say, as I have heard people say, not here, but I have heard people say, That God of the Old Testament was so judgmental. I'm glad Jesus isn't judgmental. He would never say something like that. No, the God of the Old Testament, when he became fully human and his name was Jesus, he did say that. In Revelation 3, verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. It's the same thing. His rigorous word is meant to bring us into his restorative ways. I love the way the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, and I actually printed it there for you in your sermon notes. In chapter 11, verse 5, the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1647, and yet those folks picked up the gracious point behind this stern statement. So read along with me as I read this. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. Hallelujah. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, hallelujah, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure. Even that's good news. Right? Our Father loves us, and so when we do our own thing, we displease Him. Because why? Because He loves us. Anybody ever been a dad here? You ever have your kids displease you because you wanted better for them? Why? Because you love them, remember? Do you remember that? Sometimes we can fall from our, by our sins, we can fall under his fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto, unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. It's almost as if the writers of the confession in 1647 were drawing from 2 Chronicles 10, 11, and 12. They got it. And so, my friends, restoration is looming on the horizon. 
which is shown in their humble response. And that's verse 6, the way of humility. Verse 6, they humbled themselves. It's interesting that in 2 Chronicles 12, humbling themselves is mentioned four times in one chapter. That's pretty, pretty big. That's ginormous, actually. When something gets repeated that many times, school's in session. Right? We're supposed to be learning some lessons. So it said four times. They humbled themselves. And so what is their response then? What is their response to the unpopular, uncomfortable word of God back up in verse 5? Do they shoot the messenger? No, they don't shoot the messenger. Instead, what do they do? They submit to the Lord and his directions. And that comes out very clearly in their bullseye vocal affirmation. What do they say that shows they have humbled themselves? The Lord is righteous. Does everybody see that in verse 6? That's what they say. The Lord is righteous. He is righteous in all that has happened to us. He is righteous. The Lord is fair in abandoning us into the consequences of our sins, into the hands of Shishak. The Lord is just for having done this. The Lord is correct in his analysis of us. The Lord's actions towards us are spot on. The Lord is righteous. Notice what they don't do. They don't stand on their birthrights. How dare he? We're the descendants of Abraham. He shouldn't do this to us. We're entitled to being loved and coddled and cared for day and night. They don't do that. They don't thump their chests and shout, No fair! They don't sass God. They don't ball up their fists and throw a hissy fit like you did when you were one. Remember doing that when you were one? You probably don't. But your parents could tell you about when you threw that hissy fit. They don't ball their fists and throw a hissy fit. They don't shift the blame. It's not our fault. He made me do it. It's not our fault. You made us do it. They don't shift the blame. They don't make any excuses. They humble themselves by submitting to God and to his assessment. The Lord is righteous. My friends, that's exactly what James is talking about. We read it there before the confession of sin. There's a a verse in there that gets horribly misused. It's not a bad thing because it's great when it comes to personal relationships. Probably smarter to follow that for personal relationships. But James was not writing about our personal relationships in James 1. He was writing about how we receive the word that comes to us that sometimes is uncomfortable. And so here's what James said. Of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth. He gave birth to us by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Quick to hear what? The word of truth that he has used to bring us to life. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Slow to speak against the word, slow to throw up your fists in anger against the word. Well, nobody does that, Pastor. What? Have you never been around people and watched them throw up their fists and say, my God wouldn't do that? People do it all the time. But we're not supposed to be quick to, we're supposed to be slow to speak, excuse me, we're supposed to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. 
when the word comes. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, with humility, with meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That's exactly what they did. They received it with meekness. They humbled themselves. The Lord is righteous. That's what they declared. And so they are picking up God's gracious, restorative prescription back in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. They humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. They're picking up God's gracious restorative prescription. And so, notice that God's warm-heartedness is shown. It's in verses 7 through 12, his warm-heartedness. The clear genuineness of their humility is essential to what Yahweh promises here in verses 7 through 12. And so it begins with this, when, when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves. God's rigor led them into God's restoration. But I want you to notice, and we need to grasp this as well, that when God brings restoration, because he loves you, it often comes with strong discipline. Notice verse 7 again. They humble themselves, I'll not destroy them, but I will grant them how much deliverance? Some deliverance. It's not going to be a full-blown, no-fault deliverance. It's going to be some deliverance. Well, well, why would he do that? Verse 8, they shall be servants of Shishak so that they will come to know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the nations. They will come to know that serving me, the liberating, life-giving God is true liberty and serving the other ways that are life-snuffing and liberty-stealing. They'll know the difference, so I'm going to give them, grant them some deliverance so that they can learn this huge lesson. So when you get down to verse 12, and when Robam humbled himself, the wrath of Yahweh turned from him so as not to make a complete destruction. There was still some destruction. There were consequences to their sins. I love the last sentence of verse 12 too. It just comes out of nowhere. And it tells you that even God's some deliverance is far better than anything we deserve. Moreover, conditions were good in Judah. <laughs> Moreover, conditions were good in Judah. It got better and better as the days went by. Oftentimes, my friends, in God's mercy and goodness, there are consequences to our offenses that we will have to deal with long after we've been forgiven and restored. Let me say it again. Oftentimes in God's mercy and goodness, there are consequences to our offenses that we may still have to deal with long after we have been forgiven and restored. Sometimes in God's warm-heartedness, mercy is meant to cut deep. Sometimes in God's warm-heartedness, mercy is meant to cut deep for our benefit and for our good. Sometimes mercy cuts deep to teach us, to restrain us, 
and to help us to not be total knuckleheads. To remind us, you know, ow, I remember when I ducked my head and ran down that dark alley and hit that brick wall. That hurt. I still have some scars here. You know what? I don't think I'm going to do that again. Woo! Somebody learned a lesson. Sometimes God's mercy, His warm-heartedness is shown in mercy that cuts deep for our good and for our benefit. Unfortunately, not everyone gains from God's mercy. And so comes the warning remark, and that's verse 14. After all of the some deliverance and after all of the no complete destruction and conditions were good in Judah and the rebuilding and so forth comes God's analysis of Roboam towards the end of his life. It's really where we're left when it comes to Roboam and it says, and he did evil for he did not set his heart to seek Yahweh. There's God's analysis. And it's written out as a warning remark. Now you may say, well, how did God know that? Because as David said to Solomon... God understands, searches all hearts, and he understands every plan and thought. Rehoboam may have been outwardly compliant, but inwardly he was not compliant. It's like the kid whose mom has to stick him in the corner. Anybody ever get their nose stuck in a corner? Yeah, okay. The mom who had to take her son and put, his, put him in the corner, he had to sit there, and she said to him, now son, I want you to sit there because you're being disciplined, sit there. And he shouts back over his shoulder, mama, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's funny. What? She, Robum was sitting down on the outside, but he was standing up on the inside. And so this is God's heart analysis. He knows Robum. That Rehoboam did not set his heart to seek Yahweh. And so God's prescription back in chapter 7, 14. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And turn from the wicked way Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. God's prescription that brings restoration needs an equal response. We really do need to set our hearts to seek the Lord and humble ourselves. And so then Roboam fades to black with that divine evaluation. That was a stage term, by the way. If anybody has ever been in a theater, you know what I just, what I just said. Roboam just fades to black now with that divine evaluation and warning echoing in our ears. And so the significance of this whole chapter taken together with chapter 10 and 11 is meant to guide God's beleaguered people. For God's beleaguered people coming out from underneath the exile in the middle 300s B.C. Here's how we got into this hot mess. We didn't set our hearts to seek the Lord. We didn't humble ourselves. But here's the way forward. God has given the prescription. If my people were called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way. And it's God's guidance for his beleaguered people in the 21st century. This is the way forward. So understand that God promising some deliverance in verse 7 is another lesson we need to learn. Some deliverance. As you continue to struggle with the consequences of your sin, 
Sometimes the loving, liberating God wants us to learn the difference between God's service, which is the way of true liberty, and the service of idols and idolatry, which are life-stifling, liberty-stealing. He wants us to learn the lesson. I've seen several alcoholics and a few drug addicts who were delivered almost instantaneously from that addiction. And then I got to listen to them for months and weeks and months and sometimes one a year or two afterwards whining because God didn't deliver them from every other sin, right? Sometimes, you know, you get removed, one sin gets removed, the power of it gets broken, and all of a sudden all your other sins get exposed. And they wanted God to do this for every sin. Sometimes God will deliver us from those things, I mean immediately, But it's not always, there's a some deliverance for most of us. And the reason why, so that we come to learn the difference between serving the life-giving, liberating God, which is the way of liberty, versus serving the life-stifling, liberty-stealing ways of our idols and idolatry. It's in this way we come to see more clearly the goodness and the graciousness of God. This chapter also tells us that if we come, it gives us some hope. Notice what God is doing in this chapter. Notice that he is standing ready to hear, to forgive, and to heal. Just like he says in his prescription. Notice what he doesn't say to Robum and the leaders and to to Judah. No, no, no. No, no, I'm going to get my pound of flesh before I do that. You need to go a country mile before I finally listen to you. Notice what happens. He stands ready to hear, to forgive, and to heal. And that's good news for us. We need to come back to that over and over again. Our God does stand ready to hear, to forgive, and to heal. The problem is that we don't often run to him, wanting him to hear us, forgive us, and heal us. Because it usually means there's going to be changes. You know what what I'm saying? But he stands ready. And specifically, my friends, if we come in humility, if we come setting our hearts to seek the Lord, acknowledging that the Lord is righteous in how he has dealt with us. But finally, thankfully... Our chief shepherd and supreme overseer of our souls is Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. And as we strive to draw from him, as we strive to follow him, as we strive to cherish him and so forth, then there can be a way beyond the brokenness, the faultiness, by always looking through them, if you will, to him leading us. Because he, unlike Rehoboam, this son of David, This greater son of David will never lead us astray. It will never be said of Jesus. He did evil in the sight of the Lord because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. It will never be said of him because he's always got his heart set on seeking the Father's will. And that's good news. In fact, you heard it in the call to worship. If you were listening to the call of worship, to to worship... 
from the gospel according to John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. When Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This son of David always has his heart set on the will of his Father. Look to Jesus and you will never be led astray. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. We are so grateful, Lord, for your, your rigorous word meant to lead us into your restorative ways. Oh, truly, may we have ears to hear. May there be humility aplenty that is willing to say and ready to say, the Lord is righteous. We pray that you would, you would help us, that we would have teachable hearts, that we may finally be able to distinguish the life-giving, liberty-giving ways of God and serving you, which is true liberty, versus the life-stifling, liberty-stealing ways of our idols and idolatry. Thank you again, Lord. This story is here. This true historical event is recorded for us. May we have ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen.